we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day Podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. Conference schedules are out for next season. What message it sends and who shouldn't be sending a message and the most interesting producer at ESPN and what that means for him next. This is the College Game Day podcast for Thursday, June 15th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. Pete has been to Washington, D.C. He's crushing seltzer water if you're watching on YouTube right now because he no longer drinks diet soda, I'm told. I still drink lab rat quantities of diet soda. The seltzer water is a winner for you, huh? Yeah, I had to I had to make the switch. Uh, I probably made it about ten years ago and haven't looked back. There's a there's a brand out of Worcester, Mass. Wista, if you will, from Adam Sandler's archives uh, called Polar, and uh, my refrigerator and recycling bins are just filled with Polar cans and bottles. I also do a little Waterloo sometimes, which I think comes from one of the online retailers that delivers. If we get a little bit lazy, but yeah, I went from like a six to eight can diet coke a day have it to pure uh, pure cells right now i drink coffee like yeah. I, I, i'm not perfect is, but uh is worcester yeah. is worcester the same as worcester is that the same town or are there two different towns like the place where is the, the same town the place where holy cross yeah. is that is where holy cross is bob chesney's fighting purple okay. of the of holy cross i believe they were fcs semifinalists this year reese lost to south dakota state in the uh, semis, uh, home of one-time Heisman candidate Gordy Lockbaum mm-hmm. um, from from '80s uh, Sports Illustrated uh, lore. Also, the city where I watched T.J. Sorrentine hit a three-pointer from the parking lot <laughs> to beat Syracuse. Perhaps the last time they hosted a region and in a great host city um, back in the day. They may be in a different league now, but in the old um, Futures League or New England Collegiate Baseball League. And some guys from uh, the Worcester team uh, got asked to leave early because maybe maybe they overserved themselves or got overly happy, and they went onto the field. This has been five six years ago, um, and did donuts in the outfield and tore up the outfield for some inexplicable reason. Figured out who it was, and they were asked to leave early. But um, you know, you you made the switch from diet soda to seltzer water, and. Um, the SEC sort of sticking with diet soda with the eight game eight game <laughs> schedule. They're not ready to make the change yet in conference play for next year. There are a lot of reasons for this, Pete, and you're locked into all of this. I, I sort of suspect that they're one of the major aspects of it is a is a business aspect. It gives them a little uh, a little something to negotiate with if need be. It also maybe saves some of some of their schools from paying out money for buyouts of contracts or whatever. So this is not, in my judgment, is not the best thing. I've been on record. They should play 10 conference games. But this is not ducking competition as much as it is a business maneuver. Fair? Yeah, fair. I think there's a couple factors here. One is that and I certainly don't know the inside of this negotiation, but if they were to add a conference game, they wanted uh more money from ESPN. And this may not be the best time to get more money, just quite frankly. Right. The Pac-12 yeah. is feeling that right now. These are austere times. 
you look at just the headlines about Disney and ESPN in the last few weeks that, you know, it's just, it's layoffs. There are boom times and then there are more austere times and we're in the latter right now. So I do think that the split on who wants to grow and who wants to stay are tied together. I think I've been on record on this podcast saying that I do feel like one of the things that scares some of the have-nots is the six-game bowl minimum. I don't. I think that will be eradicated in the in the next five years, if not if not sooner. As the conferences grow, bowls want big brands uh, because TV networks want big brands because big brands rate. So I feel like the the place for a five and seven Mississippi State, South Carolina, Missouri team in in the bowls is coming sooner than later. But I think that factor has has folks hesitant. I think I saw some of the what they wanted for one extra game, which seemed to me to be a little bit unrealistic. I, I will say from my time on the uh, University of Arizona panel down there in uh, in D.C., one of the more interesting comments to come out of it, and the D1 ticker, credit to them, they aggregated this, uh, was Dean Jordan from Wasserman, who's a longtime uh What's the best way to call these guys? They're consultants, yeah, mm-hmm. longtime TV consultants, and they they work with leagues like Dean's worked with ACC for years on these TV deals. And he said, if the SEC really wanted to 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 grow the pie, they're better off growing it by going to ten league games than actually adding more programs. Which I just thought was like a really interesting sort of counterintuitive. What have we seen the last generation, Reese? We've seen you want to grow cables, you add Rutgers and Maryland. Mm-hmm. You want to grow, you grow the pot, you grow the inventory. And so I thought that comment was instructive that it's not a volume business anymore, which isn't a new a new notion, but it's a quality business. And I mean, look at that SEC schedule released last night. Like I'm excited for Georgia, Alabama in 2024 mm-hmm. already. You know what I mean? Like we can we could put our reservation in uh, for for game day Thursday night at Dreamland or whatever fine um, you know fine local institution. We'll let you pick uh, for being an you know being an alum. Chuck's Fish. Where? Chuck's Fish downtown. Okay, perfect. Let's uh, go. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable place. Anyway, Gulf oysters. Yeah. I'm on it, man. Let's let let's do it. So I really do think that just we're we're in interesting times and evolving times and changing times. And uh, that that was like the the gist of the SEC sort of deciding not to decide. Well, you know, Pete, I think that I'm glad to hear someone say that from a business standpoint because I've been of the opinion that ten games is the way to go from a competitive standpoint since they decided to expand the playoff to twelve because you're going to have two and three lost teams in the field. They're going to have to get used to that. Fans are. So, too, uh, will committee members in selecting them. And even last year, there would have been three lost teams in the playoff if we'd been in 12 teams. But they would, to be fair, they would not have been at large teams. We would have had the unusual situation, I think, of having uh, three of the automatic bid teams have three losses. I think that's right. I looked at that uh, yesterday. But the inventory is important, and if you're getting that much money and it's not going to hurt you in terms of your ability to play in the college football playoff, which it won't, can't lose all of the games, but that's never true. You know, if you play close and and have a 9-3 and record, okay, maybe you don't get the home field, maybe you don't get the buy, but you get in. And the benefits probably outweigh the risk in terms of, Uh, improving your television revenue and improving your ratings and uh, pushing interest to a sky high level. All of those things seem to make sense to me. And 
On top of that, just from a football standpoint, which is what you and I are more concerned with, that's the game the fans want to see. Those are the games that the players want to play in. And they're the ones that generate interest. Have you have you had a look? And I hope this was right when I saw have you had a look at Florida's twenty-four schedule? I have. That Florida's schedule is what cool. a schedule should look like. It's yeah. with with eight conference games. You correct me if I'm wrong, but their non-conference games are Florida State, Miami, UCF. And I think they have Sanford or somebody who play homecoming. Okay. That's eleven of the twelve games are are big time. That's what it should be. And that's what everyone should do, whether that's eight games in your conference, nine games in your conference, or 10 games in your conference. That's what you should do. should play 11. If you want to take the 12th and help out Sanford by giving them a check and, and making sure everybody on the roster gets in the game, of course, I know Jacksonville State comes in and beats you sometimes, as Florida State will tell you. But And I'm not trying to pick on Sanford. They have a good program. But you want to play somebody off the radar for one game? Fine. Go ahead. You know, and I don't care if it's in November or if it's in September. I don't care when it is. You know, if you really play people in November, who cares? If you, if you played a cupcake in September, it tastes the same, right? And, you know, so I think that's what the schedule should look like. 11 legit Power 5 type opponents for everybody. And whatever you want to do with that 12th game, go ahead. If you want to play another one, go ahead and do that too. But if you want to play FCS or – um, you know, someone else in um, in the FBS, then do what you want with that 12th game. Yeah, so two quick points on Florida. One, Scott Strickland, their athletic director, has been one of the advocates of power teams playing power teams and more games between power teams and not having a home schedule, as we've seen kind of Georgia have in the past and a few other teams in the past, really without many compelling games. Now, that's going to be harder and harder to do in this new SEC if you just took a quick look at the schedule mm-hmm. the other night. The other interesting point for Florida, I think, in 2024 is that that's going to be year three for Billy Napier. Mm-hmm. So he is a process plan guy. We've talked about this on the podcast. I don't have great expectations for Florida in 2023, but by that third year, you know, you're going to have 90% of the roster is yours. You're going to have young players who've grown up. You're going to have coached your system, which he has a, a resolute belief in. You could have a really good team and a really good season and still lose a whole bunch of games. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's, that's hard, you know, for somebody trying to flip, flip a program to, to go into, you know, to go into the lawnmower in that, uh, in that sense. But I think the the tension point here we're at, Reese, is a tension point that you and I had uh, off off the podcast. Is would you schedule that way if you knew a three loss SEC team could get in the playoff? And what do we need to see from the College Football Playoff Committee in terms of strength of schedule next year, and then starting in twenty twenty four? To, to help dictate, I think that SEC ADs want to see some empirical evidence on how strength of schedule will be used. And will it be instructive in the next 12 months to how what the SEC decides, what the prism of the playoff looks like? The exception I take and took just before we started is when this notion, and maybe it's just a vernacular that bothers me, but the exception I take is when people say, well, the committee has to send a message. No, they don't. That's not their job. Their job is to evaluate. Now, within that context of evaluation, if the strength of schedule is deemed insufficient, then that's a, then that's a marker against you and it hurts your overall body of work. 
just because you play X number of games against Power 5 opponents or X number of conference games, well, that's not created equal. It never will be. You never know from year to year what is the most difficult thing to do. Take, for instance, for most of the previous, prior to last year, the previous 15 years, um, Alabama played Tennessee and that was no big deal. A couple of close games mm-hmm. in there. Now it seems like a big deal. And the, and the reverse was true. When Philip Fulmer and Peyton Manning, T. Martin, when they really had it going at Tennessee, they had to play Alabama every year, and that was no big deal for many of those years, simply because Alabama was down. These things go in a cyclical fashion. And in most cases, not all of them, but in most cases, you get a lot more breathers depending on your Big Ten schedule, than you do in the SEC. Now, can you get some in the SEC? Thousand percent. No doubt about it. You know, you there you draw certain uh, certain teams annually, and then maybe you uh, hit on another one that's down. You're going to get some breathers, and it's mm-hmm. going to be the same. But, Look at Georgia's schedule this right, year. Right, exactly. And that's why I'm against this idea of, well, they have to send a message if they don't play X number of conference games. No. You evaluate their schedule, make a judgment based on that team and what they did and how they looked and use your football judgment. And if we can't do that and you've got to send some kind of message, then just put a formula together. Everybody hated that when we had it before. Now everybody wants it again. So this message sending business is, to me, is akin to saying that you want a judge seated on the bench to advocate for your particular preference. That's not what a judge is supposed to do. He's supposed to adjudicate based on the law. Now, I know we get away from that in this country, too, but that's a different topic for a different podcast. But what they need, what that committee needs to do is adjudicate based on the rules and evaluate. And within that evaluation, if the strength of schedule is insufficient, okay, then that's a marker against you. But going in there and saying, well, you only played eight conference games, so you better be exponentially better than somebody who played nine, never mind that the nine might be in a lesser league, never mind that the nine might have been against the not as strong opponents, a bulk of them in that league. You know, So you can't make these blanket statements like this because it undermines the, integ- the integrity and the mission of the committee. Evaluate the teams and give us your answer. And, and to me, that's the, that's the way to do it. I don't want to hear about um, you know, sending messages. It's not their place. All right, let me let me let me ask you this then. Let me let me pick your argument apart here, Judge Davis. Good luck. Um, if you uh, if you want people to play eleven power games like Florida, if you want the future of the sport to look like more very good on very good and not three games of of yawning appetizers, quite frankly, not like college basketball really mm-hmm. looks right now, which is Carrier Dome. Um, if you want college football to look more like that. Shouldn't the committee have a metric in place that emphasizes or promotes strength of schedule in order to to guide the sport forward and not put schedulers and athletic directors and coaches in the fetal position? Because they want to be in the fetal position. They don't want to play these games. The fans want them. The networks want them. The business ticket office wants them. But coaches don't. And so there's a fundamental tension there. So I'm not saying like the, you know, the, the, I would fire a coach who didn't want to play those games, and, and that's and that's that? fair. But look at the schedules. The coaches want to play the games. Well, they're I mean they're in self preservation mode. 
They all are, but and they always will they, be. To answer to answer your question, they already have strength of schedule components that they can evaluate. I never said should it be you, accentuated. I never said that you don't evaluate that. Yeah. It's just you don't go in with the preconceived notion that because you only played eight games as opposed to nine, nine games as opposed to ten. Look, I hear all the time about this, especially in basketball, the overall body of work. Well, then look at it. And if the overall body of work is insufficient and part of the reason why is because you didn't have you didn't you didn't take an extra challenging game within that. OK, I have zero problem with that. You know, if some SEC team, you know, I'll, here's a great example. Georgia is going to be one of the most talented teams in the country. They're going to pass the football judgment test no matter what. But they don't have a lot of margin for error. If they lose to Tennessee and don't go to the SEC championship game, if the teams on their schedule turn out to be what we suspect they will be this year, mm -hmm. it could always be surprises. Teams could be better. Might turn out that South Carolina game's an unbelievable, you know, whatever. But let's just say that it plays out as we anticipate that it will right now. Georgia loses to Tennessee, doesn't go to the SEC championship game. They don't have much of a case, right? And so that, I agree. that I'm yeah. fine with. Because that's yeah. part of their overall body of work. I'm saying that going into it and saying, because you only play eight, we're holding that against you. No, I, I think because you're going to get the two and three loss teams, just, you just are. I mean, we would have had it last year. You know, we would have had it most years if you had it 12. So I think that it'll take the coaches a little bit getting used to. I think your point about getting rid of the bowl eligibility thing will alleviate a lot of the, we've got to get to six no matter what. And the other aspect of it is, is as money starts to be dispersed in a lot of different places and most of it going to players and, and facility improvements for some other sports and some places being put on hold because they want to see how much money needs to be directed or encouraged uh, to be given to NIL collectives and the like up until then. I think all of those I think for all of those reasons you're going to have to drive the revenue. How do you do that? Just as you found out on the panel, more attractive things on TV it drives the drives the revenue up and that's that's how it's going to work. And at the end of the day, Pete, you know this and the coaches know it too. And I understand because we all we all have self-preservation within us in our careers particularly. At the end of the day, if all you're doing at an SEC program is getting bowl eligible, I've got news for you. You're getting fired. You're going to get fired. <laughs> so, you know, you might as well aspire to more. And you probably had a big buyout clause put in there. So you might as well play the games, aspire to more, and maybe you got a chance to hit a home run with it. You know, because if you're six and six, you're not going to be six and six for long. You're going to get fired. This is more like an existential question for the sport, maybe, than um, for the you know this narrow prism of what we're talking about here with scheduling. So one of the sort of gloriously ludicrous things about college football is that no one's ever been in charge, right? And it's been that way for 150 <laughs> years, and it, it I don't see it changing anytime soon. I sat with Charlie Baker uh, on that panel in, in, in D.C. the other day. He was a nice guy, but he ain't in charge of college football. He knows that. And he, he knows he's making up as, as much money from the college football playoff as, uh, you know, you and I are. Like, like even, even, Walter, even Walter Camp, and I believe the man's name was Charles Elliott, way back in the day, 
they even butted heads and camp had rivals when he was uh, trying to put things together. Nobody's ever really been in charge without being challenged, right? No. So there's, there's no one in charge. So should the collective college football playoff powers that be, the biggest power brokers in the sport are all on that, commissioners and ADs, et cetera. These are all the people you have, you, you've been, you have, you have with a straight face listened to the, I'll talk about game control all those Tuesday nights into perpetuity here the last few years. But should these gentlemen put the onus on themselves to be sure that the course is set forward for the sport where the good are playing good? And where that is acknowledged. Now, I'm not saying send a message. And I, the 8-9 game thing doesn't bother me. Because if you're playing an 8-game schedule and you have two great out-of-conference games, I don't really care how many conference games you play. Like, what what offends me, and we talked about this in the pod, this, like, I, I believe in intent. Like, remember Ohio State played Cal one year, and they scheduled it in the Aaron Rodgers era, and ended up being in the in the middle of uh, not Aaron Rodgers, Marshawn Lynch, Cal. I, I I couldn't even make it. It was, it was like, J- whoever replaced Jared Goff's Cal, right? So... In, in, in that sense, like, do you punish them for, like, playing a really good program that just ended up stinking that year? Um, I, I believe I, – I'm a believer of intent, which is an impossible thing to judge. But if you have three directionals in, a, in an FCS and uh, – and that is your that is your non conference. I'm trying to think who oh like Michigan last year. Michigan last I mean, year. Michigan yeah. last year was the example. And then you know transverse property UCLA was because they were supposed to play Michigan and Michigan bagged the game. Mm-hmm. So um, Michigan last year, like I always felt like they should have been looked at. Now look, they earned everything, right? They beat everybody. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a question. But like I thought they should have been looked at through a little bit more of a skeptical prism, especially early in the year before they really showed it because they didn't have the intent. So, um, I don't know, like, is there a way to like quantify an incentive through the committee? And I know strength of schedule is a metric. I'm not denying that, but like, is there a way to accentuate that for the good of the sport long term? So we don't start seeing these home and homes, these glorious home and homes that still exist like Oklahoma and Michigan. And, uh, I think we've got what Ohio state, Georgia coming down the line here Mm -hmm. soon. Like, uh, I think Ohio state, Texas is on the docket soon. Um, we can't lose these. They're too valuable. Like we just yep. can't see people going in the fetal position. Those games being chopped, and so my I call agree. isn't for like a statement from the committee about something small. My call is to the to the greater power brokers around the sport to structure in such a way where you are incentivized to play games where everybody wins, except that one sideline and that one coach. What's the most? What's what's the biggest motivator? In all of life and business, well, that would be money, Reese. It's money, right? So you, I think, I think you already have the motivation in place. It's the way to drive revenue, as as your uh, panelist said. To you, who was that again? So I'll quit referring to him as the panelist. Dean Jordan from Wasserman. Okay, he's Dean a, Jordan, he's a long time consultant in that space, and a, and a, and okay. a really bright guy. Yeah. Okay, so Dean, as Dean Jordan said, you get more great content. That drives revenue. There's the motivation. Yes. The money is the motivation. The but the TV uh, contracts are in place, Reese. You're getting yeah, paid the same are, amount. You're getting paid the same amount, but you have better bargaining position long term. Yes, and sure. you'll get left behind if you don't. And I believe a lot of it's already in place, Pete. Because if Michigan lost a game last year, I mean, that was going to come and come back and haunt them. If Georgia loses a game. Now, if they lose the game, if they lose the game that keeps them out of the SEC championship game and keeps them from winning the SEC, 
they're not going to have much to rely on. And I, th- I think it's in place. Now, if you want, if you want to say that strength of schedule as it is, or the metrics as a, if you want to devise a formula, and that's how we're going to choose them, I'm fine. I mean, just as long as we set the rules. I just don't, I want football judgment employed, but not some arbitrary thing that may or may not be accurate. Because to your point, I, I differ with you about intent a little bit. And I think you just have to evaluate what is. Because you're going to be punished enough in most instances if you're on the cut line, if you have a schedule the way like Michigan had last year. You're going to be you're going to be on the cut line anyway because of that. Intent, you know, if if you wind look, if you wind up playing, um, if you wind up playing Colorado last year, or playing North Dakota State, okay, well Colorado Power Five game probably have a harder time beating North Dakota State, right? Oh yeah, uh, or, sure. or South Dakota State or whoever. Mm-hmm. So the intent of it, I, I think you just have to evaluate what is. You evaluate what happened on the field, what the football judgment says, what the strength of schedule numbers are, you know, what what everything looked like when it was played. That's what that's why you have the committee. If the committee mm-hmm. doesn't have the ability to make that type of judgment, then we should devise the very best Bill Connolly formula that we can come up with. And I miss Bill. We need to get Bill back yeah. here soon. Yeah. Bill, I did take exception to one thing Bill wrote about uh, with the SEC scheduling. I think he referred to the Alabama-Tennessee rivalry as a lesser rivalry. Uh, I would like to inform Mr. Mizzou that to many people, that is the rivalry because it's the, it's the oldest one. But anyway. And he'd I, say, I hey, Reece, shut up and buy me my steak already. <laughs> yeah, that he would. But, you know, he's never around. He's never around. I bought you a steak for some reason. You did? I can't remember why. I think we did a postseason bet. I don't remember what it was, but I was clearly <laughs> had the superior opinion. So, uh, No, you didn't have the superior opinion. No, no, no. It was about... Um, it was Ford Atlantic won that thing for you. Oh because yeah, Ford we had Atlantic that. We had like the, the prop bet. Yeah, yeah below is like yeah. below a seven seed. So we're uh, like FA, one step from gambling on like the third quarter of a MAC game on our yeah, phone. Yeah, exactly. Come to the F, <laughs> come to the FAU got you a stake. That's that's what it was. Anything else that really has uh, has jumped out at you about all of this the scheduling release or the time that you spent in Washington or? or anything as it as it pertains to what we'll be looking at in the next few years? Well, I'll say this. The Washington piece was interesting. Um, so I went to – so the, there was an availability with Arizona President Bobby Robbins, and then there was like an SEC in the halls of Congress, like reception, um, where there were, I believe, seven SEC head coaches and ADs. There were enough like coaches and ADs there. Were, I couldn't even talk to everybody within like a two-hour – within a two-hour frame. And then there was uh, the event that Arizona put on had its own like cocktail hour where there were like senators and representatives mingling. So I'm not name dropping here. I'm just setting the scene. It was like a very bizarre day for a college football reporter to like put on a suit, go to I felt like I was playing like dress up reporter in the movie. I was like, like auditioning for all the president's men. It was like my one day to like, you know. Uh, go cover Congress, be like Jonathan Martin from Politico or something and, you know, uh, dive right in. But it was it was interesting. Um, the SEC event probably was the most interesting because Nick Saban was there and Greg Sankey was there. And again, I'm going to miss some people because it was two hours and I didn't see everybody. I was a little late, but it was 
Clark Lee, uh, Candace Lee, uh, Hugh Freeze was there, glad handing, uh, John Cohen, Zach Arnett from Mississippi State, uh, Zach Selman, the AD there. So again, I just to set a scene, all these people are there and they are all basically there, Reese, to take pictures with like the 20 something congressional aides from their state so they could then be put on Instagram. And then the coaches, <laughs> like Brian Kelly came in the next day, we're all going to meet with these senators and representatives for the sole purpose of that. So like I, I kept saying for like 24 hours, like, all right, Greg Sankey is a very bright guy. He is very calculating. There are very few things Greg Sankey does. And it's a compliment, by the yes. way. It's not anything sinister. No. There are very few things that Greg Sankey does without thinking three steps down the road. So he just doesn't. And they had this SEC night in D.C. before. So it's not the first time. But Nick Saban, to get Nick Saban to come in professional small talk and glad hand is a big ask. Right? Like, that is not what Nick Saban likes to do. He likes to recruit. He likes ball. He likes his family. Shaking hands and like, you know, oh, yeah, you're from uh, Gadsden. Uh, oh, you're in Senator so-and-so's office. Let's get a picture. That's not exactly <laughs> like what Nick Saban rolls out of bed doing. That's why he's still coaching Alabama and Tommy Tuberville is actually a senator. <laughs> so uh, long story short, it was like, well, why did, you know, a lot of private plane gasoline dollars were used to get all these cats up here for a Wednesday night in D.C. And my like takeaway after living it and thinking through it was basically it was like one giant plea from the SEC to Congress. We need help. We need help. We need unification. We need the sport kind of on the same plane and on the same path together. And what we don't need is competing states with different NIL rules and then everybody trying to one-up each other. It's just like cheating and recruiting, except now they're doing it through state legislatures, right? And I mean, like, I'm bidding this for this defensive back. We're going to bid this. Da, da, da. And now it's like, we're going to do that. this loose NIL rule. We're going to do a looser NIL rule. We're going to do a looser one. And, you know, take that, Mississippi says Texas. Well, take that, Texas says Florida. Like, that's kind of what's happening competitively right now. And it's completely preposterous because no one's in charge. So um, this was the SEC wanting to workshop the we need help message to Congress. Now, do you think it's going to work, Reese? Um, I don't have a lot of confidence in Congress to be able to sort this out. I think we've said this several times. I think collective bargaining with whom is a big problem and a huge question. Who represents the players? How that's all uh, orchestrated from a logistical standpoint. But I believe it's the only fair and reasonable long-term answer. Who would you put in charge of college football? Because I've had a lot of conversations over the years with Mike Krzyzewski about basketball, and I think he's the mm -hmm. obvious easy answer if you were going to put someone in charge of college basketball, it would be Mike Krzyzewski, especially now that he's not coaching. Who would you put in charge of college football? I'll give you three names that I think could all do a really good job. I'll start with recently retired Jack Swarbrick because I think he's looking for some type of big challenge and he's a big brain. He's regarded as probably having the highest intellect in the space. And I think he has one more challenge in him. I know he has one more challenge in him if it's the right challenge. Um, he's not going to go be an AD somewhere else. He needs some big thought project. So I would say Jack won. Um, the job would have to have some power, though, because he's not going to roll out a retirement to, to be a puppet for anyone. I'd say Oliver Luck, too. 
He's got a little bit of experience in a lot of different places. He worked at the NCA. He worked for the NFL. He was an athletic director. He ran uh, Sports Commission in Houston. He's built stadium. He's kind of seen it all. Mm-hmm. He's been a great player. Uh, he's been the father of a number one draft pick. Like he's seen a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. and has the type of personality you need. You can't. That's not a dictator position. It's a mediator position. And Oliver has that disposition. And the third one, if it happened down the road, would be Dave Clawson. I think he has the intellectual heft, the respect of the coaches. He's done an unbelievable job, uh, you know, making the uh, sum greater than the parts there at Wake Forest for a long time. Um, so I would think in the coaching set, he obviously doesn't have the championship heft of Shashevsky, but he has the respect and uh, could do a good job. Who would you pick, Reese? Um, the short answer is I don't know. Okay. Um, because – the, th- the thing that strikes me about the three names that you brought out with the possible exception of Swarbrick is that none of them would function or seem to be to have the disposition of a Roger Goodell or an Adam Silver, um, you know, who, who, while, who, while maybe can be conciliatory, also, you know, who's in charge, you know, all the two things being true. Um, so would you view this role among any of those three gentlemen as being akin to what Goodell and Silver do in the professional leagues in terms of the way the way they govern, the way they run things? Yeah, like ultimately, I don't think that role will ever happen because it would take the conference's seeding power. And the one thing I've learned 20 years into doing this is that nobody's going to give up power for the greater good Correct. or anything. And so Absolutely. that's just... That's just a hard thing to say. Hey, let's put these really accomplished, high intellect people in a job where they're doing, where they have no power. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. another one of my takeaways from DC is that's what Charlie Baker is finding right now. Is mm-hmm. that he, there's NCAA Division one, two, three. There's you know to make a bill to become a law. I made a joke on the panel. It's like a civics lesson in DC, but for the NCA. And quite frankly, Reese, if you said I'll give you a thousand dollars right now to how to 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 walk through how an NCAA like proposition becomes a rule, I don't know if I could do it. I don't think I would get the names of the committees all correct. I have a general sense mm-hmm. of how it goes and you know, have plenty of people call to look it up, but like the process is so ludicrous and cumbersome that it's not even worth tracking because it just takes so much time. And Charlie's discovered that really fast that like there are, he is cutting through a lot of layers. And you also have so many disparate institutions too. Mm-hmm. And the sure. go-to line I've always used is that the only thing Duke and Duquesne have in common really athletically is the first syllable, you yes. know, and <laughs> other, and yet they have a similar voice on basketball matters anyway. Yeah. I think probably of the people you've mentioned and you're right about no one seating power. And I have a quick story about, about that in a second, but um, I, I'd probably say Sankey because I think he yeah. understands, he sure. understands the media side. He certainly understands the administrative side from a conference standpoint. I, I he'd probably be my first choice. But would um, he take a less powerful job? No. Well, that well, that well, that that would be the thing. It would have to be yeah. a more powerful job by definition, which then leads us back to nobody gives away power or money for nothing. Uh, we had this discussion several years ago when the uh, proverbial uh, cupcake schedule SEC thing came up late in the season on game day, and I brought up the point that Jimbo Fisher has made to me on a couple of occasions because he was a small school player. And his Jimbo's position on it is that it's for the good of the game that you that you 
basically bankroll these programs by allowing them to come to then Florida State or now Texas A&M to play, to play his teams, to which, to which on game day some brought up, uh, well, why don't they just give them money? Just give them the money and not play the game. I said, when, and my response was, when you find someone who will just give people that kind of money for not doing anything, I mean, let me know. Maybe they'll give me some too, you know? And it's, so people aren't going to give up power without something in return, just as they don't give up money without something in return. And the giving up of the power would almost have to be if college football got in such a dire position that it's that its value and its worth uh, depended on giving the power to to one entity that would rule with its best interest and and maybe maybe Charlie Baker eventually can do something that has the powerful football playing schools doing their own thing and uh, organizing and governing themselves because I, I believe uh, I've said numerous numerous times I said it already in this podcast it's the only it's the only way forward reasonably now look we'll we'll continue to have college football but I mean if you want to find some uh, some area or some uh, semblance, of order and framework and rules it's it's the only way with all of the other things that you've mentioned with the different rules in the states and uh the ncaa basically being toothless to enforce any of the nil inducement type rules the only way you can do it is to negotiate it and then you have to if you're going to negotiate it you have to have people on each side knowing who they're representing <laughs> and and having the power to make those types of decisions and concessions and um, compromises and ultimately reaching an agreement when we're probably a long way from that, unfortunately. So there's a really telling moment on the panel where I was, uh, of course, making bad jokes like I often do on the podcast about uh, the NCAA and Congress having an inertia off to see like which one has a <laughs> more difficult time passing legislation. And uh so I said to Bobby Robbins, who was on with Charlie, the Arizona president, I said, you know, one of the things that makes NCAA legislation so constipated, for lack of a more artful word, is that the presidents are in charge and have all this power. And it's, you know, they if they're if they spend more if presidents spend more than five percent of their time on athletics, they're probably being negligent to the billion dollar institutions that they represent. Right. There's just it's just mm-hmm. too big of a job to spend more time on it than that. So I said to Bobby, you know, would you be willing to wield some of the you know, to let go of some of the power and let Charlie do the job more unilaterally? And he was like, hell no. <laughs> and everybody yeah. laughed. And Charlie, Charlie clapped his hands and was like, that's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. it's because true. it's just the truth. Yeah. yeah. It was like the he was the one honest guy in Washington CDC that day, Bobby Robbins. <laughs> well, yeah, there's no, that's a great line and a funny joke, but it also really, uh, as jokes often do, there, yes. there's some truth in it. And it shows maybe not personally toward Charlie Baker, I'm not implying that, but there's a lack of trust. Yeah. You, you don't believe if you're the president of Arizona or Arizona State or, you know, Oregon or whoever. Sure. You don't necessarily trust and believe that someone running the NCAA has your best interest at heart sure. and has the good of the entire enterprise. You don't know what their motivation is. And that comes from the years and years of, of problems and, and capricious and arbitrary enforcement and punishment, you know and others not being punished. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's been decades upon decades of a lack of trust. 
between mm-hmm. the two sides and you can't just all of a sudden say, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I, I think you, you probably are the right guy. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, which sort of brings into problem the, uh, brings into uh, question the problem of finding commissioner and actually giving him any authority to do anything that we were discussing earlier. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, everyone wants reform and everything wants things streamlined, but if you don't want to yield any power, and you don't want to give up the committee to the subcommittee to the committee for rule proposals to get to the rule proposal to get, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera, joke upon joke. But, um, yeah, like I, you know, one of the reasons I was surprised Charlie Baker took that job. And again, we're, we're not political on this podcast at all, but he's a he was a successful governor in Massachusetts where I live. And he was a Republican in a Democratic state, which takes some skill. And he was generally regarded as a guy who could have, like, run for president. Um, so again, I'm not a political analyst, um, but like he was just a pretty competent American, you know, taking a job that had been defined for the last decade by incompetence and lack of power. And the governor of Massachusetts has way more power in Massachusetts than, than the NCAA president has among the NCAA. So how many, how many times do you think, and I've never met Charlie Baker, you obviously have, how many times during his tenure? As the NCAA president, you think he's gotten up in the morning early, I presume, to get his day started, walked in to brush his teeth, looked in the mirror and, and said, what did I do? What what have I done? Yeah. Well, he's he was in healthcare before that, which is its own sort of morass of complications. Politics is its own morass of complications and college athletics is its own morass of complications. So he came off as a very smart guy. I'll say this, Reese, he was like the... You know, you know the old saying: "It's not uh, what you tell people; it's how you make them feel." Not what you say. Like, like you left that room feeling like Charlie Baker's got a little juice to him. Like that was mm-hmm. that was kind of the impression. So that's good. I mean, you know, it's it's spring practice, and the defensive coordinator is more aggressive, right? So, like, we'll, we'll see what happens when you line up across <laughs> from the tide in October. But right now, like that was the feel that Charlie gave the room, and that's a good feel to have because he, you know, if Mark Emmert was the uh, you know, the the coach with his nose and the X's and O's who had no relationships with the players, they fired him, essentially. I'm sure they paid him a ton of money to get rid of him, too, though. And brought in the players' coach who can, like, give the rah-rah speech. So now we're going to see in the next year whether the rah-rah speech works. And I think the, the test almost is as much like Mark Emmert just kept getting his face kicked in. He was a professional pinata. He stayed five, six years too long. I think people at the NCAA would tell you that. Presidents, ADs, like nobody liked each other, but he was getting make, making three million bucks a year and he wasn't disliked enough for presidents to rally to get rid of him. There was like that inertia just kept things, you know, just kept the 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 circle of impotence going um, all around and around and around. So I, I just wonder if a year in Charlie Baker's like, I don't know, like if, if if progress isn't met and he isn't able to nimbly go through this thicket of a minefield and, and make progress. I wonder if he just throws up his hands and says, you know what? I could just go back and run for president. Like I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> well, I, if he if he has the type of juice and it sounds as if he does and he can be a good leader and can help uh, get things on a more normal course uh, a more satisfactory one one that protects the players one that protects the enterprise um then i hope he sticks around hopefully hopefully he will let's talk a couple of of fun things first i want to go straight hardcore old school football based on um text i got from a friend 
the other day. He asked me, and he opined, think Bo Nix is going to be a first-round draft pick next year. And my friend, who is a knowledgeable guy, works in the industry, in the football industry, says yes, and I tend to concur. What say you? I will say this, that, and I believe I said this on the podcast last year, that I had, I had a scout who swore on in the last year that Bo Nix could be a first-round pick. Uh, a guy I trust, guys evaluated a lot of players I've talked to for 10-plus years about players. He thought Bo Nix had the physical talent and tools to do that. I was skeptical because I saw Bo Nix go, dun 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 So, again, I don't bring that up to be a jerk. I credit Bo Nix for his development. Credit Kenny Dillingham. Credit the system Dan Lanning put in that suited him. Credit the good offensive line. I think the sort of serene surroundings of Eugene helped him getting out of the SEC pressure cooker and family ties and all the you know Auburn nonsense that he saw, and he saw plenty of Auburn nonsense. So, um, all that said, like I don't know if I would bet on that yet, but that's not a notion that shocks me. By the middle of last season, I kind of like I hit my guys like I kind of see what you mean about Knicks. So, you know, it, it will be interesting, Reese, because. Something has to give in the Pac-12 with these quarterbacks, right? Like this, to me, is the single best season with the most quality depth the Pac-12 has had in the 20 years that I've done this. Do you agree with that? I have to think back, but I think it's really strong between Knicks and Penix. Obviously, Caleb Williams, Cam Rising's back. Um, Uyanga Lale, um, you know, I'm sure I'm off the top of my head. I'm forgetting some people. Um, but, you said Caleb, right? Yeah. Okay. Um so, yeah, I think so. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Um, quarterback from Incarnate Ward at Washington State's back, obviously. Had right, a, had Cam a, Ward, yeah. Yes, Cam yeah. Ward had a really nice uh, yeah. really Good nice player. season last year. And, uh, you know, people are intrigued by Shador Sanders. I'm going to wait and see on him. But, like, there's mm-hmm. certainly some talent there, and he's won, you know, big at the FCS level. Um, Jane so, Delora had a really good year at Arizona last yeah. year. Yep, yeah. he's he's a talented uh, a talented guy um, who's won some big games at two Pac-12 schools. So I'm uh, I'm excited about that. I will not if it was over under first round on Bo right now, I would take the under. But with quarterbacks, like nobody moves up draft boards faster than quarterbacks. There's such a deficiency in need at the NFL level for those guys. So I would like to see it. It's a great story. I'm not there yet, but I think that's a good that's a good projection question. Um, who, so who's the guy then that sort of explodes onto the scene, shoots up draft boards, um, guys that really are a little bit off the radar at the moment? You know, if you saw, for instance, if you saw Joe Burrow in 2018, you're like, yeah, whatever, he's, you know, he's fine. And then all of a sudden, the next year, he's Heisman Trophy winner. He's an NFL star. Um, you know, Anthony Richardson is probably not a good example simply because he you know, people you know knew about him, knew about the physical the physical ability he had, and it was just a question of experience. But he he went flying up the draft board. Uh, Mac Jones, you know, ended up being a first round pick when no one would have suspected that the year before. Who is that this year? I love JJ McCarthy. I think J.J. McCarthy is that guy. He's certainly talented. He obviously led him to a playoff. He's not obscure or under the radar, but I don't think he's a guy that fans think of in that conversation with Drake, with Caleb. Uh, 
I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up QB three when we're uh, when, when we're all said and done. I really like Penix. He's twenty four and has has a difficult injury history, so like it's hard to stand on the table for a franchise using a first round pick on him. I hope it happens. It'd be a heck of a story. The the overlook thing on Penix in my mind, Reese, is that he's elevated two programs to new heights mm-hmm. like he has yep. helped two programs transcend what they've been now washington's been great in the past but he took over at a bad washington maybe the worst washington yeah. in my well ty willingham was bad too but it was it he completely changed the face and the reality of two college football programs that's really hard to do and that speaks to some of those you know Dak-like intangibles that that he'll bring. But I think the knock on McCarthy coming out of high school was that he was slight. Um, and he's still slight, quite frankly. Uh, he's under uh, under 200 pounds, the bio I'm looking at here. I think he can really, uh, he could really make a jump. And I wouldn't be surprised too. Again, this is another big name. It's not obscure. I'll give you one obscure name when we're done. But I think Quinn Ewers could really end up in some high-end conversations. He's going to be a divisive mm-hmm. guy. Some people thought he was a little lackadaisical. He was certainly inconsistent. But poof, that pure arm talent is is something people are going to fall back on. And uh, I know just from from being around him and his camp, like there's a, there's they they want to have a rocket ship year and and and, and go and and start his perfect look he started his professional career two years ago let's be honest the way uh-huh. things have the way, the way things have gone so um i would think ewers is a lot more talent around him on offense than than past iterations that line has finally kind of recovered from its two decades of ineptitude so um off the radar a little bit i uh, i like riley leonard from duke I think he's a guy that, again, you want to talk about if the quality you look for in a quarterback is changing the paradigm of a program. He certainly did that for Duke uh, last year. He'll have that huge showcase game at Wallace Wade Stadium, the opening Monday against Clemson. Um, Clemson's got a really good defense. And look, Duke mm-hmm. outkicked its coverage massively last year. And maybe maybe there'll be a little bit of a regression to the mean. But Riley Leonard showed he's every bit as good as the high-end ACC quarterback. So I, uh, I think he's a guy, if he continues his ascent, can you know with his physical talent and his arm strength, could get in those conversations. There are a couple of guys, a couple of transfer guys who have been highly regarded before and might be again because of the surroundings they'll be in. Mm-hmm. Watch Brennan Armstrong and Devin Leary. Sure. Uh, Armstrong out in North Carolina State, back with an offensive coordinator with whom he's familiar and had his greatest success. And Devin Leary, uh, back, or not back, but at Kentucky and with the offensive coordinator uh, who helped Will Levis to his uh, to his better year, the year prior to his final year at Kentucky. So maybe maybe those are, are a couple. Um our, we haven't heard from Taylor, our producer yet, who now apparently has decided to make himself some type of social media maven and is like posing with a, with a drink in his hand and oh, dressed up, the, the, uh, the trousers cuffed just right to show the driving shoes and no socks and, and perhaps auditioning for the next iteration of the most interesting man in the world. What what's going on there? What what's happening? What's happening with you Taylor? Now you're in your in your more customary habitat with the Raglan shirt and the Oeo's cap. I believe that's the way you guys like to say it. Um, but now but all of a sudden you looked like you were 
you were the most interesting man in the world in your Twitter or Instagram post. What was happening there? Hola, fellas. I was on vacation <laughs> in Mallorca. I can speak a little more Spanish than hola, but uh, yeah, I went on vacation with the wife, and uh, we're both kind of Europhiles. Um, I studied abroad in Spain during my time in college, um, so I love that country. I'd never been to Mallorca, and my wife, when we go over there, she insists that I dress fashionably. So that outfit that you saw was curated by her, um, you know, insisting that the pants be cuffed, definitely trousers. Um, she was very excited by that. We went to, uh, you know, some some stores where she bought me some more clothes. You know, she wants me to look re- very European. But this is, you're right, Reese, this is more me right here, like a brewery t-shirt and a and an <laughs> Orioles hat. The, um, the, the cup trousers, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing because if, if if there's too much material at the bottom, I mean, even if you go even if you go traditional straight leg, the whole the whole skinny thing is out. You want to do that, mm-hmm. but at the same time, thank if, God, even, by the way, yeah, even straight <laughs> even straight leg trousers, you you need a little taper down at the bottom, or they kind of look ridiculous. How I, the picture you did it well. How did it work when you then started walking around? Did you look like did they look all baggy and they were gathering on top of on top of your shoes or? How, how did that work out for you? No, they were already, the legs were already a little tapered. So the, the cuffing okay, was just good. kind of a, a nice accent. So they didn't bunch that's or good. slide around. I mean, I'll show you a full bod picture. I thought I looked pretty uh, good. I'm not that interested. Ah, okay. I'm not that <laughs> interested. Yeah, that's okay though. I'm, I'm sure you looked stunning to your, to your bride. So that's great. What's, well, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm with a, well, you, you're the most dapper man in America. So, you know, the compliments coming from you, that, that means a lot to me. It, you you look good. It was it was Thank a good you. look. I, I give you that. Yeah. How was Mallorca? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Like oh my should... god, amazing. I'm I'm considering moving over there, opening up a bar. You know, smoking my meat and uh, you know greeting weary travelers with uh, some American nachos. You know, trying to <laughs> ingrain myself in the culture over there. We could do a live pod if you did that. We could help promote it. <laughs> I think we could sneak that on the expense report, right? Check, check this out. So we were thinking, like, let's open up a bar. We'll do, like, a U- – people love, like, home improvement, uh, BS. So we'll, like, do, like, a YouTube series. Like, these American idiots have never opened a restaurant, and they moved away and sold everything. And here they are, and they can – you know, I'll feel myself having, uh, you know, mental breakdowns as I try and, uh, you know, p- drill holes into a wall or something. Crying into your trouser folds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pete, if you had to, if you had to go off the grid, if you had to go off the grid and do something like Taylor is saying he would do, what what would you do? It's a good question. It definitely wouldn't involve home improvement. I would say that first of all. Uh, if I were to just disappear off the grid, I would probably go to Barcelona. That's my favorite oh, city yeah. in the world. That's where it I has, studied, my man. It's the best. It has best a little city bit of everything. It has beaches. I like beaches. It has nightlife. I enjoy nightlife. Food. It has art. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I go to museums every day, but I like, you know, like a good art, you know, cultural scene. That to me, I think that city is unbelievable if I had to disappear. If I actually had to go do another job, boy, am I not qualified to do anything. Like, yeah, me like, either. Yeah. Yeah. Like break random temple analyst stories. That's really the only thing I'm qualified <laughs> to do in life. It would be pretty yeah. scary if I had to, uh, if I had to do something else. But like, I don't know. Really like, some people that like fantasize about like going somewhere remote. And like, just, I don't know, that doesn't, that doesn't do much for me. Now, 
like some random Tuesday in August, do I just want to go to like a quiet beach somewhere and just read all of Bill Connolly's conference previews for like seven straight hours? <laughs> that sounds pretty nice. Like that sounds like a good little Tuesday to me. But like in terms of isolating from uh, society, did you see that Cormac McCarthy quote that made its rounds around Twitter where he insisted on being poor, much to the chagrin of both his wives. Um, it might have been both his ex-wives. And that, like someone would come to him and offer him $2,000 to speak at a uh, school, and he'd turn it down. And, he, and the ex-wife was quoted saying, and we just keep eating beans for the next week for dinner. <laughs> yeah. I don't want that. I don't, I don't need to like bathe in a pond. Like I'm, I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need anything too fancy, but I'm, I'm, I'm good on that. What about you, Reese? What's your, what's your, I, what's your duck away? Go to Alabama well, and eat that weird peanut butter saw, uh, chocolate sauce that we talked about on the. Uh, remember no, that? I, yeah, I would. I would go. I'd probably go someplace like that, um, just like completely out. You know, kill your own food, raise your own food. I don't know how to do any of those things, but we're making this up. It's just something you. <laughs> I don't know how to do any of these things. But if I were going to go off the grid, I'd go. I'd go completely, completely off. And, and be self-sufficient. There's that, no hair which I'm, on which, I'm, which, uh, which I'm totally incapable of doing, by the yeah. way. So I would I would have to take a course or something before I before I disappeared. So I mean, wouldn't your pocket square get blood on it if you were killing calves? Like that would be a weird yeah. dichotomy. That, that would be the thing. That would be a, that would be a strange that would be a strange <laughs> thing. We had to go in. Uh, I probably shouldn't. Say, we had some business to conduct. Um, my wife and I, and so the lady who was helping us with this business as she was filling out the forms, she asked me, you know, what I did for a living. And I said, you know, I'm a sportscaster. And she said, well, that's not on my drop down menu. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> you know, how about broadcaster? Uh, you know, whatever, none of these things are on there. She said, we can't type in our own thing. I don't know what to put. So this was probably not the wisest thing I did. So I did my best James Spader as Raymond Reddington, and looked at her and said, how about you put concierge of crime? <laughs> Fortunately, she had seen the show, too. So she got a little bit of a chuckle out of it. But I thought later, I thought in a business environment where I'm certain that there are cameras and recordings everywhere, that probably wasn't the wisest joke to make. It's like making an idiotic joke to a TSA agent or something. Yeah. That's just not Never small, joke to a TSA agent. That's just no, not, no, they just, they are humorless. They're humorless yes. people. Yeah. And so I don't blame them. Don't they have a hard job. I, I, yeah, I just, yeah, I well, smile and so, say, so, have a nice day. You yeah, can't like, them, they're, they are not the place to make your, you know, to make your joke. Yeah. Some things. of them, and, some, some of them are awesome. Some of them. Yeah. Are no, awesome. there's a lot. I've run into a lot of really, uh, yeah, a lot of really yeah. good. What did you decide on the drop down menu? Um, was a reporter or journalist? sports professional she found sports professional on the on there so that's what we decided on the drop down menu so mm, that was it uh, yeah my 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 wife and i told her i didn't appreciate this joke speaking of unappreciated jokes she said she said is talking head in there <laughs> i was like not funny not not funny at all. No, I didn't find any humor. She found found it wildly amusing, but <laughs> me not so much. But anyway, fair enough. All right, gentlemen, this has been this has been fun. Yeah, good Taylor, to be, good to have you for? back uh, stateside, um, Taylor. Good to be back, fellas. How are the Orioles doing, Taylor? Are they are they meeting your standard? <laughs>
They are meeting my standards. They just, as we were speaking, they beat the Toronto Blue Jays to uh, take that series to a three. Uh, they're second in the AL East. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying Orioles baseball, which is not something I've said many times in my life. So, so far, so I good. went to Fenway uh, Tuesday night to watch the Red Sox. And it's always nice to go to Fenway. It's a beautiful night for a game. And uh, the baseball team just isn't very good. So enjoy it because there were a lot of years where Red Sox romped into Camden Yards and, you know, uh, played very well. And we are now being romped upon. And that such is life. Pete, enough. You've seen four World Series in your life. I know. No, no. I don't, don't like, want to hear it. I, <laughs> I get it. I'm not. That's why I'm not complaining. Like they've had a good run They're The people are, you know, people are carping for maybe some management or ownership change around here. That's kind of the chatter in town because they're not invested enough. Like, I, you know, as a fan, I don't require much, but like when you, when you charge what you charge for tickets and then don't spend on players, that's like a little bit offensive to me. So anyway, you didn't really need my baseball commentary, but baseball tonight podcast for more of this. Yeah. Well that, you know, that is, that was one of your grand accomplishments and your most interesting man in the world. You once yes. produced a podcast without Buster Olney, which I know is your favorite. We we know where we hey. rank. We know it's Buster and then <laughs> whoever else you do podcasts with. That guy, that us. bald guy with the glasses. We, we he uh, he comes in somewhere SVP. on the power ranking. Yeah. You know, the tall one. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. You know, uh, yeah. Okay. Here, here it is. Here's the last question. I'm going to leave you with this. Your fantasy bar in spain depends on it and you can only have one podcast client is it buster Olney, who i know that's where your heart is or is it svp where you probably make your money oh man this is tough you can decline you know what if you're a smart man you will decline to answer yeah, that question yeah. because right. buster buster is a close friend and svp you know maryland icon so really two Two tough strings you're pulling at here, Reese. That that shows why you're the the most interesting producer. He gives answers. He gives no answers to direct questions. I blew the joke. (laughs) (laughs) This is why why I'm released like podcasts. But he gives no answer. Boo. (laughs) Here, how how about this? I'll leave you with this one. He's asked direct questions. He gives you no answer, but you think that he did. That's it. College Game Day Podcast out. We'll see you next time. Download this wherever you like to get your podcast. And just for Taylor's sake, please download extra copies of the Buster Olney and SVP Podcast.